Welcome to Say When For, the New Year's Day special episode, Resolution. Straight from Planet Xanax. Edmund from Planet Earth. And Darawan. Not from Darawan, but I wish I was. It's a very good small island with the world's only um, non poisonous jellyfish. No. I am your pilot now. Daleks. Daleks. That was the big thing, really. I was going to say dads. Dads, dads and Daleks. Dads, dads first. I thought of dads, what? Daleks and Dinkle. <laughs> yes. And DNA. <gasps> oh my god. Oh, I want to talk about domestication. Good. Right. That fits. Can I pioneer the term dadsense for absent dad? Mm. Oh, great. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is my theory. I can't really remember where we left so much of the plot of this episode in terms of the action revolves around. The idea of, like, we must stop this fleet signal transmission being sent out by the recon scout Dalek to the Dalek fleet. We have to act through the episode both as if there are Dalek fleets to defend ourselves from, but also knowing that somehow there aren't and Daleks are extinct and there's just this one Dalek surviving outside this Dalek legacy. So how can a plot work in which it revolves around the fact that Daleks both exist as a threat and do not exist? So that's like a kind of Schrodinger's Dalek. Integral to the plot. Especially advanced from the basic Dalek, the first to leave Skaro, possibly the first to reach Earth. Every time they sort of scan the Doctor, sometimes um, they know the Doctor is the destroyer of worlds, the beast of Trenzalor, the like butcher of Skull Moon, the great exterminator, and sometimes <laughs> they're just like Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh, the Time War is the great battle, has the great battle in heaven. But we've actually gone through the Time War several times in a way. Mm-hmm. Like it's weird because. It feels like we've gone through more than one cycle of extinction. Um, hence the Doctor saying, this is your final, final, final warning of like the Doctor being forgotten by the Daleks, but then the Daleks being somehow re-exhumed and the Doctor remembered. So I think in the um, internal logic of the episode, the um, Dalek arrived and has been in stasis in four bits in three minutes. Three minutes. Um, since the ninth century, I repeat, Ninth century, <laughs> uh, as far as the Dalek knows, the Dalek fleet very much is existent and contactable, and wages that Aaron as a hostage is enough to for the Doctor to transport them simply on order, rather than like supervising the um, question of spatial temporal coordinates. Mm-hmm. Just do we buy that? Well, how can it be true that there both is only one Dalek? cut up in three pieces and resuscitated as a squid under Sheffield Town Hall, but also true that there is this immense threatening fleet. Like, we're both in and out of a kind of canon reality in which this is, like, the only remnant Dalek, but also it's a relevant threat. But how how can it be both extinction and non-extinction and threat and non-threat at the same time? I, I totally agree, and there's some fuzzy um, trans-fourth wall um, kind of Donna effect happening where the obviously um, like previous world threatening Dalek invasions of Earth just aren't in 
anyone's living memory. At no point do the, does the Doctor ever go anywhere else to try and stop the dark. As far as I well, obviously I feel like there's probably visits to him once and find them in other places, but like it's specifically like the Daleks are mostly a threat when they attack Earth. Although I never understand why Earth is so valuable to the Daleks. The Doctor finds Daleks, but doesn't necessarily doesn't ever seem to kind of. I mean, I could be completely wrong and missing a few episodes, but never tries to sort of go back and destroy the Daleks before they've been created or anything like that. There are obviously some origin stories about meeting Davros when he was a boy with the Twelfth Doctor. I haven't seen that one. But um, I, I just feel in the, like you said, in the internal logic of the episode, the Doctor simply lies. As you say, trust, the Dalek trusts that the, the threat is enough and allows the Doctor just, to just take the more to the supernova, which I think is a really endangering thing for her to do and highlight her. Like, and it's almost, it is, when she says it's personal between me and the Dalek, it is like, she seems quite, this isn't so much like a gathering the companions in episode, it's very much like the Doctor is fighting this one Dalek, and it's like, there can only, it's like, there can only exist the Doctor and no Daleks, that, that's harmony, Doctor and no Daleks, and that's the thing that's trying to be achieved in this. Final, final, final warning, because I'm nice, I really do try my best. But I'm not sure whether it kind of just isn't <laughs> a resolution. Well, it's weird that that word resolution because it seems like so much of this episode is not really about new selves. And there's there's language of turning over a new leaf and how you need to be redeemed by other people in order to do that. But so much of it is not really to do with new selves, so much as old selves returned, old histories, like looking through Aaron's childhood box and questions of what can and can't be revived from DNA, like work both emotionally and through stories of Alfred the Great or a ninth century Dalek foe and this kind of resuscitating of the old. Mm. So the Dalek squid has to reforge a new Dalek shell, which is like it, that's the kind of it's a kind of dead resuscitation in the in Sheffield's industrial past. So both the, the Dalek and it's a call back to the Doctor. Mm-hmm. The thirteen Doctor building her new screwdriver again in the she- in the forges of Sheffield. So there's a sense that it's the Industrial Revolution and the post it's post industrial technology that, that enable this reforging of a kind of um, northern powerhouse doctor doctor world. Mm-hmm. So we're in that kind of um, kind of nostalgic economic reboot post two thousand and eight kind of world. This is the kind of an attempt to get a new kind of economic boom <laughs> going. This is what thirteen months. Totally, um, and uh, if we could sort of revisit that, you know, first as tragedy, then as farce, then perhaps post uh, 2010, Tory economic policy could be dubbed uh, an industrial resolution in the way that we never really keep our resolutions. And uh, mm-hmm. and yes, it's wonderful that like not only the sonic screwdriver forged in the um, garages of Sheffield, but uh, the Dalek casing made in uh, Farmer Dinkle's barn. Perhaps Farmer Dinkle is a prepper and therefore <laughs> has exceptionally, you know, good weapons capabilities. I quite like when she's when the Doctor says, uh, "I thought I was rid of them, but I'm never rid of them." And they are this kind of you use the word reboot, yeah. but aren't they this the most ultimately rebootable species? Mm-hmm. Because they've become both the most exhausted and inexhaustible foe of Doctor Who mm-hmm. in, a, in its own way. Like endlessly resuscitating. We, we remember the Dalek that was 
revived and repaired by a single touch from Rose in the first series of Rebooted Doctor Who. Signal activation in nine rails. The fleet shall be summoned. No, it won't. No matter how many times you try, no matter how long you wait, I will always be in your way. There was a sense of that sort of exhaustion, though, I think, in this episode when she says, I'll never be, I'll never be rid of them. It's almost, yeah. that was a resignation. Right. Um, to, to like, and almost like a commitment to the continuation of the Daleks somewhere, a nod from the writer, like, we won't, we won't be retiring if it's time soon. But it's yeah. weird because the Daleks are there present in their absence as well. So it's like, there's something weird. Also, if we think about the supernova moment, like, so the fact that narratively the plot works as if there is a Dalek fleet, and then the line that she says when when they arrive is, sorry, did I not mention, no fleet, only a sun going supernova in a squid-sized vacuum corridor about to pull you into space. You're too weak, Dalek. You can't hold on. But I think that's kind of directed at the Daleks' attempt to hold on to this narrative structure in which there are Daleks. And in fact, all there is is a space, like a sucking vacuum at the heart of the narrative. And you, you know you can amplify that through the personal narratives, mm. like the kind of the discussion between um, Ryan and Aaron when Aaron says, "Is that how you talk to your father?" And Ryan says, "I don't know because my father hasn't been around." So he's living in a plot in which he doesn't have a father, and somehow by re-entering the plot, Aaron is reviving a plot in which he does have a father, and that kind of weird gappiness of the story, where like just by somebody walking back in, you reinvent the canon, and you're like, "Yes, fathers do exist." Family isn't just about DNA, Aaron, or a name. It's about what you do, and you haven't done enough. To go meta, then, and to, re- to think about this economic narrative more, so it can never get rid of them. They mm. are kind of part of, because they their fame goes far beyond Doctor Who to the extent they're kind of, they're kind of 60s icon. No one can quite come up with another enemy that's quite as, that leaps outside the show becomes so famous. So in a sense, it's, it's a frustration of the, the end of the great uh, post-war boom. <laughs> so it very much explains why, you know, um, this is a very, you know, timely, queer timely, you know, encounter with what I, for me is, yes, an embodiment of the um, the kind of the spectre of, or a spectre haunting techno-industrial civilization. So, you know, both um, dads, absent dads, and Daleks, um, and we perhaps we could say, you know, do- the Doctor's dad is also a bit of a Schrodinger's dad, um, because that possibly <laughs> un- unconfirmed sense that doesn't exist, um, but, you know, also perhaps simultaneously necessarily does. And, you know, are these not, you know, the, the fruits of, you know, domestication, the family unit, reproductive futurity? There's plenty of archaeological evidence that, you know, physical communicable diseases that we know of, you know, mostly come about, you know, around the, the time of the Neolithic transition. And, you know, can we not confidently say that the same applies to um, our mental ills? I, I would like to see, you know, the Dalek facing the residents of, you know, so-called North Sentinel Island. Um, but the, the reason why we don't get to see plots of this kind is because Daleks threaten Earth in, in, in the sense of globalised industrial society, humanity with a capital H, mm-hmm. specifically the last 10,000 years and quite late on in the last 10,000 years where these reconnaissance scouts, possibly the first to reach Earth, possibly the first to leave Skyro. All right, so pointedly we don't get to see them 
threatening, you know, humanity or the human species at any other point since in the last 200,000 years since the differentiation of Homo sapiens. It's weird because it, it seems to go from like the, the more generic idea that we get a lot in, in different episodes, which is the Doctor enabling humanity to redeem itself. But here we have a more hyper-specific, as you say, family unit version, which is specific to New Year's Day. There's nothing to do on New Year's Day because everything's closed and everyone's hungover, so all you have to do is to redeem each other from the dark side by throwing the intergalactic squid of depression off each other's backs by forgiving each other for things that shouldn't be forgivable. Right? Um. <laughs> DNA. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about this. So there's several mentions of DNA. There's a recapitulation of the Dyer history, which is that they're the remnants of a warring race on Skaro, um, genetically altered uh, in some way to, to this squid like form. And then they end up to the extent they need a casing and then they're sent off and uh, they've lost whatever other dynamics of the species they had. Now they only just want to kill and destroy and control. But then, on the other hand, we have um, Ryan, someone talking about family as being more than just DNA. Graham. Graham. In the sense, it, it, it's a big team going around in a flying time machine battling strange mutated fascists. But on the other hand, it's kind of the kind of species being, like, what is the status of DNA in that sense? Well, I think what was uncomfortable about the, the last moments with Aaron at the door of the TARDIS is that apparently the only, like what had been withheld and I think was really um, appropriately withheld from Aaron in the conversation with Ryan was redemption and immediate acceptance back into this role of father and family. Mm-hmm. But then under the under the threat of losing him completely and in a horrible, violent and useless way, Brian, in order to speak to his dad and engage with his dad, like trapped under the control of the Dalek, was to say that he forgives him, which I feel like was unne- an actually unnecessary line. Why did he have to forgive him mm. to bring him back? Mm. And I feel like I didn't. I, that just that seemed against like the mm. weft of actually what I quite liked about the series' approach to family, which does highlight this is this is a you know, the TARDIS team is a family and other families are easily lo- like the doctor says in the first episode Yaz asked her if she has any family well I lost them all a long time ago mm-hmm. I don't know whether it was sentimental or purely as it, it to, to satiate some some viewers uh, sense of what should happen because it's not just about different versions of family but as opposed another alternative to DNA is other forms of sentimental reassembly so like the idea of this box of objects like what what is that you know we've seen is it yeah. also can, I actually now can't remember, but in in Dalek, the episode with Rose, she the the Dalek sort of repairs itself through her DNA when she touches it yes. and time energy. So it's yes. it's like a good heady mix of like some DNA, some time energy, and yes. then um, kind of not great for the Dalek. There's a bit of compassion thrown in there, which kind of fucks it up. That's one thing that companions get to keep afterwards is like this time energy buzzing around their bodies because Sarah Jane also has that. I mean, is DNA not the ultimate spectre? Um, these genes, or genies, perhaps we could call them, have you ever seen them? I haven't. You know? And so, uh, you know, what I think it, that what your comment reveals is that, you know, this this uh, idea, this ideology, this religion of DNA that we're all indoctrinated into, is it, it, it locks us into an idea of time. It's the last opportunity for the reassertion of a completely dead idea of 
futurity. And um, yeah, it's obviously it's disappointing that we don't completely get to um, throw that off our collective backs in a single New Year's episode. But, you know, mm-hmm. it may be a bit of a cop out to say the same answer I always give, which is that this is a necessary transitional stage to get to. So I want children to see and engage with this um, hypothetically because, you know, eventually they will have the tools at their disposal to oversee the abolition of the family Mm. in its most uh, nebulous, Mm. uh, resolvable um, form. So do you, do you see something transitional in Doctor Who, like and in the themes that are just trying to form? Very much so, and yeah. and and I think that's you know it may be the perfect you know television show in in if, for me for that reason because there's it's my uh, take on the world doesn't is not communicable in the form of propaganda. Come on then, you lot. Places to go. When you say places to go, what are you thinking? Where to next? I was thinking... Everywhere. So, <laughs> so the series as a, as a reboot, one that is open to new audiences, and specifically children, seems to be... I mean, I was watching... Some of the twelfth Doctor episodes, and thinking a child would not—well, children are great and can grasp a lot of things, but wouldn't grasp some of the angst that's being expressed. Especially, I think at one point when Clara starts throwing away the Doctor's TARDIS keys. Um, spoilers, and I think that the Doctor is rebooted and kind of gets this new family built for her, and a lot of the kind of losses and griefs and massacres seems to have sort of ebbed away mm. but perhaps this episode is in some ways much like the Dalek you know reforming in the centre is pulling back some of the, the the Doctor's history and suggesting that the next series may be kind of bringing, bringing back some of this kind of angst and history and weight that, that has that's, I think that understandably again after watching those last like 12th Doctor episodes understandably they really went into that and sort of layering history over history, history and pain and, and loss. And I just think perhaps if you're as a, as a, if you watched all of the series as an order, you would not want at this point more Doctor grief. You actually want, you know, it's it's, it's what the Doctor needs to, to keep going. Otherwise, one, I would say. But yeah, I guess then I could ask any thoughts on the Doctor in this episode and the relation to the family of companions, if not to. Uh, blood family. I really liked when in their big attack on the Dalek in its casing, it's, the Dalek is kind of blowing up and the Doctor explains verbally why it's blowing up to us in a monologue at the same time. So we get both special effects and a kind of scientific <laughs> explanation of something going low voltage and then very, very high voltage. What's that plot device called where like, if there's a smoking gun or a mantelpiece, then it's going to become relevant for the plot? But it just Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's gun, right? Because isn't the microwave kind of like a Chekhov's gun? Because <laughs> why is he turning up in a cafe trying to sell a microwave? There's a, there's also like the weird book ending of the story between the UV ray at the start and the microwave at the end, mm-hmm. and it's this sort of like age-old story, <laughs> great seasonal tale of UV versus microwave. Like, 
The microwaves. And the Wi-Fi. The terrible joke about Wi-Fi going down is right, also because yeah. obviously Wi-Fi microwaves. Um, microwave turns out to be the savior of humanity. The Dalek laughs for the first time. I think it's the first, it's the first time in Doctor Who that a Dalek has ever laughed. I think Amy has got a good impression of it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that something like that? I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'll link we'll it up laugh in more often. post-production. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There'll be I, some yeah. rebuffs. <laughs> I wish for them to laugh more often. But is it related to the fact that, like, I can't remember all the times that we've seen a naked Dalek, but, that, you know, it is noticeable, for instance, of course, the voice that we associate with the Daleks and thus the personality is actually more to do with the metallic exoskeleton. So the, mm. the kind of, um, what's that, that kind of frantic high pitch like thing that happens didn't really happen in this episode and that's more like how the voice filters through the exoskeleton so how is the personality of the naked Dalek different can it only laugh because it's naked there was a particular uh the Dalek really enjoyed in a sensual and disturbing way like riding humans around like strange cattle with obviously very dark undertones also and I just think perhaps that's like I feel like the Doctor particularly hated this one yeah. And and what it was doing. Yeah. Like the, the, so therefore, it was like a very. Um, this Dalek was not just a Dalek, but it was a particular one, almost like finely, sharply um, contrived to get to the Doctor. Right. Would um, you say that it's also joyriding? Because it's yeah. sad. Yeah. Because there's no need to drive a car that far. Like there's, there's nothing. You know, it's not time sensitive, but it sends out this signal for the big transmission. But it's very insistent. Go faster. Uh, but it's joyriding both in Lynn herself and Lynn in the vehicle. And there is a joy that it's taking. Like, there's no reason for that to happen other than the Dalek just wants to do it. Like Interestingly, the Dalek says to um, uh, cop number one, you are an enemy of the Daleks rather than a kind of prey or something because the Dalek mm. has been defeated by Plantage Humanity. And then there's another sense in which the whole episode is some kind of massively interrupted date. Because um, <laughs> it opens with a classic Doctor Who kind of couple. As it, which actually raises another kind of another one of my interests in, in kind of neoliberal popular narratives on TV, which is that when when there's like a first date or there's like a, a flirty relationship between two characters and then it's interrupted and then one of them has to save the other one. That's somehow more attractive to the scriptwriters and apparently audiences than like a long established couple who've been together for about a year uh, having to save each other. Because there's something about that the fact they haven't that that like the massive leap from kind of saying hello to awkwardly to like having to save someone's new life and the universe is somehow more entertaining and emotional. <laughs> an emotional crush. I feel like there's there's in Doctor Who there's the couple who have only just recognised their attraction to each other and then thrown into a situation where they're forced to express it in an extravagant way. Or the couple who truly do love each other and one of them will always sacrifice themselves for the other. Amy and Rory. Amy and Rory, oh there's a horrible moment that actually made me shudder, which is spoilers before Amy and Rory leave the series jumping off a building and and then Amy says that's marriage before they jump off the wow. <laughs> yeah, wow, I only watched that the other day um, and that happens and, and, and I think constantly almost constantly in Doctor Who 
um, a, lo- a loved one from a pairing, um, being able to break through the emotional suppressant of either being a Cyberman or a Dalek to to save their um, loved one at the last minute. But that, I mean, Doctor Who is not is is very interested in disposing of, of couples. If like, I don't know. I'm not saying that necessarily like in a radical way. It's just something that that happens is that there isn't really a sense of... I think it's the couple can't really survive time shifts and travelling about in time because it kind of breaks the couple form in that sense accidentally. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the Doctor Who universe, do you think you should couple up because you know you might be in a situation where you need your humanity to be recovered <laughs> 6,000 years of being some sort of centurion or whatever? Well, exactly. That's your, your capital H humanity. And, I, you know, I think that there is the, there's, there's a lot of fun in exploring these, you know, these, uh, the gestures towards throwing a spanner in the works of the relationship escalator, because instinctively we all know that crushes are what it's all really about. <laughs> so there's a, uh, right in the start with these, with, um, with Lynn and Mitch, the two archaeologists, um, they're having this, it's New Year's Day, it turns out they've only turned up for work because they both wanted to come see the other one after a, some kind of kissy kiss that occurred on New Year's Eve. So they're probably both massively hungover. Um, and then the point at which they get around to chatting about it, uh, and realise that it was definitely not a mate's kiss, um, that causes, uh, Lynn to brush the floor and see a part of a Dalek body. Um, so it's almost like, it's almost like you actually like, <laughs> it's a bit like you swipe right and see <laughs> a third of a dollar, and then it all kicks off. The do- like this is a side point, which I feel like is just a frustration from like the way that they relied on the doctor previously being a man who sweeps in and like either is flirted with inadvertently mm. flirts with someone, scopes out a new companion. None of that has happened in this. Mm. Or they haven't tried. They obviously, Basman, you know, will rise apparently, but um, they they haven't actually tried to to you know what's the word nudge anyone together. And and I'm not that I'm against that. I'm very into like quite an asexual doctor, slash a romantic doctor, or both. But they're it's just noticeably absent as that was such a crutch for so much like comedy or just plot that they just like mm-hmm. literally sexual tension between um, the daughter and her companion being mm-hmm. some of the driving force of an episode, which is just interesting to, to see various script writers navigating around that. I think that's, I find that quite nice. 13 in this amazing scene sees Ryan's dad coming through the door and just immediately says, you let Ryan down, you didn't have to do that. There's not, that's the first, like, oh, it's like, hello, Ryan's dad. And then she says the big thing immediately. Mm-hmm. Which is actually, I, that's the moment that I almost cried. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ryan's look of, I feel like, both pain that that's true and a little bit of gratitude. I thought was very yeah. lovely. And I will must, I must, I will must, I must give a shout out to Jason Cole's inflating eyes mm-hmm. when yeah. he was leaning towards the camera. It was. It was it was beautiful. Yeah. I feel like I would be sad if that plot line about romantic sweeping never came back because we feel like so much for me I've found appealing about the tenth and the eleventh doctor is that writing toxic romance and toxic romance structures. Um and I enjoyed the twelfth doctor saying do not sentimentalise me and that that was an interesting answer to that. But I still find toxic 
interpersonal relationships and an important topic of time travel uh, amongst other things and the kind of power that goes into time travel and i think there's a bit in i clearly just watched the end of one series of 12 where um missy says that she actually put the doctor and clara together as a toxic combination on purpose saying that you're a, she's a control freak and you're someone who won't be controlled mm-hmm. and mocks him for like going to answer her call when she's calling for his help which is an interesting like in the, and then in that same episode Missy's trying to give the doctor what she calls a gift and it's almost seen as a romantic gesture of a huge endless army of cybermen for him to defeat all of his enemies across the universe right. which he refu- which he refuses because actually if you give the doctor a huge army of cybermen there is no point for the television series Doctor Who who just right. has a continuous broadcasted massacre. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Is there something like, I've not really thought of, I'm just thinking this now, but like, is there something in because a lot of the way that people have talked about this series is that the idea of a human life itself is very full in this series. And I think a lot of what that toxicity has come from in previous series and Rose is like the best example is it's about the emptiness of a human life. So Rose is picked up by the doctor and from then on, she's just like, what was I before this? I just ate chips on the bus. All of her own human life is then reduced to just being on a bus eating chips. And against that, you have all of time and space. Whereas I feel like in this series, there's a, there's a massive change to that. And actually, it's about the fullness of a human life is bigger than time travel. So like Yaz is the episode that focused on Yaz. Really, the fact that she can't really know what her family did or how they narrate their lives, the kind of complexity of human lives as they are in human history as it is as immensely full and complex and i think really twists that around in an interesting way like the human life is not an empty cipher it's like the opposite of that in the series 13th doctor's predecessors uh, overcompensate for the lack of uh, that uh, element um by uh patronizing the sort of sentimentalizing it uh, in their um the emotional equivalent of techno babble. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, what great edit, yeah, yeah. So I think revisiting, um, you know, monsters from the past is very much something that I'm looking forward to in the possible forthcoming series, both in the um, sense of both in the science fiction sense and in the psycho, uh, social emotional sense. Yeah, because one of my favourite Doctor Who monsters is loneliness. Like that was that's a great that's a great monster from like classic. 10th Doctor canon, like, and I'd, I'd actually like that to come back because so much of the Doctor arc is to do with rescuing us from just being boring humans. And actually, there's so much emotional complexity to that that, you know, it's addressed through, um, I don't know, I hope it's addressed more. I like loneliness parts. And I think that there's that key moment where the Doctor chooses tea at Yaz's over travelling off oh, on, yeah. on her own. Which might be the sort of um, yeah, turning a turning point in the in the intention of of the writers in the series to move in that direction rather than back from whence they came. Mm. Yeah, and the kind of also the physicality. The Doctor loves physicality here, where uh, she skids across the floor of the TARDIS. Oh, yeah. I did the best skid I've ever done. Really chuffed with that. <laughs> uh, it's like that is a very fullness of. <laughs> it's very grounding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very grounding. So maybe, yeah, so maybe like the world of ciphers has slightly given way to, to something which is like uh, a politics of care, you know, thinking about reproduction just a little bit, the, the light is coming in um, in a slightly different way, which is actually more cheering than thinking about the, the failures of, of a kind of 
the, the bigger failures of kind of middle entertainment. Yeah, and the limitations of human life. But uh, it actually, it kind of connects with, I don't think, maybe you haven't mentioned this yet, but you were talking about it earlier, but um, the archaeologist character, certainly Mitch, um, some of his perspective, because he's a sort of obsessive, right, mm-hmm. reminds me, if, if it reminds me of any episodes, it reminds me most of episodes where the Doctor is not central for one reason or another, such as Blink. Mm-hmm. So the character, where, where the plot of the episode is kind of experienced more from the outside, kind of conspiracy theorist, real human, you know, obsessive construction of these narratives. Yes. All of those kind of key episodes that you remember where the Doctor is somehow like a a marginal narrative that filters into just real human life. So, the, see, in this sense, the the custodians of the pieces of the Dalek uh, since the ninth century have obviously had to like build up this great myth, this powerful myth at the time that will sustain through the centuries. That would mean that there'll always be someone guarding each piece. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the bit that went to Yorkshire that didn't happen, mm-hmm. so there was the weakness in the plan. Um, but that sense of the myth that has to be reconstructed by or by an obsessive is a sense that the, the doctor. The DVD yeah, because if you have the TARDIS, you can go and check out the myth and be like, okay, that is true. <laughs> Whereas if you're if you're stuck in, time, in linear time, just you just have to either believe it or not. It's like the equivalent, right? But I think connecting to what you just said about the doctor being on the periphery, I feel like the last scene. Where she took them all to a supernova with the sole intention of just getting rid of this Dalek and resolving her own storyline mm. with the Dalek, and did absolutely nothing to help support Ryan or Ryan's dad. Mm. Also, the idea that there is a there is a place where the Doctor is like locked out of interfering, and it was almost like in that familial space with the little vacuum mm. that they're about to fall into. But perhaps, yeah, that's almost like a very subtle reminder of the Doctor in previous series of someone who's outside the family, who watches the family, but never quite um, enters into it. Just to go back to that last one, I, I just wondered if we could come back to the phrase, you haven't done enough, which I think is a really interesting phrase in this episode, because particularly in terms of what you're saying, if we, if we think about, like, the, in theory, emotional scene between Brian and his father in the cafe, what happens in the kind of acting of that scene is that Ryan plays the role of his father as well. So Ryan says, this is what you would say, and this is what I would say. <laughs> um, but similarly, there's something similar going on with the Doctor character, right? The Doctor really doesn't do much. And right at the end, Ryan sort of rescues everybody from a squid. You know, so that the way in which the actual key, the key figure of the father and the figure of the Doctor, both in this episode, it is true to save them, you haven't done enough. And the same with the Dalek, right? You you haven't actually come into real existence. You've sort of re-exhumed yourself by like an incredible like we've never a level of magic that we've not seen before in a Dalek. So like you've been, you've shown yourself to be more powerful in terms of regeneration, but you just haven't done enough. Like just because you've re-exhumed yourself doesn't mean you have a fleet or that we can somehow go back into the existence of real Dalek parts. And same just by a father walking back into your life or a doctor taking to you to a supernova. None of these characters have done enough, and yet the narrative still kind of hangs together, riding on Brian, really. And can we go fall back on our um, our favourite excuse that it just, you know, the constraints of neoliberal fiction just cannot account for the situation that we're in? Total biopolitical spectacular control society meets catastrophic climate change. I mean, yeah. what stories do you want to tell? Yeah. We just haven't done enough. <laughs> right. we just, no, well, quite. Yeah. 
Great New Year's yeah. message. I must, yeah, I love it. Steal from your parents, children. <laughs> steal. Don't accept inheritance. Steal it. Steal until the meaning of stealing is is uh, irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, and that's what the doctor basically said. <laughs> yeah. The New Year's resolution. <laughs> that seems an appropriate place to wind down. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I want to leave it. Happy New Year! <laughs> <laughs>